nature of rewards and crowns on the top. Anyone not have one of those? Uh, do you have extras back there? You know what? Maybe I shouldn't ask that question. Maybe they're all given out. I don't think they're in the... Okay, they've got a few. So if you need one, put your hand up. Uh, anyway, it should be in your bulletin, I guess. I, I, we changed that between the services. So... Yeah, we'll get there. Okay, young people are dismissed. For, uh, kindergarten through third grade are dismissed. Okay, keep your hand up if you still need one. They've got a few more left. Meanwhile, hope you brought your Bible with and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to look at a topic this morning that many of you have probably heard of before. Uh, we're going to deal with it again this morning. I've entitled it Through the Fire. It comes right out of the text itself. The whole question that comes from this end of this chapter is, does God care what we do with our Christian life? The answer is yes, 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 and yes. That's the four points of the sermon. And uh, you're going to see why God cares and why you should care about what you do with your Christian life. We have talked about the judgment seat of Christ in the past. That is what we're talking about. But that terminology is not found in this passage. This passage gives us the process that happens. And as we look at it this morning, <clears throat> we will see that God indeed does give us a final exam. And that's where we're going to start this morning because the question is, does God care about what we do with our Christian life? The answer is yes, Christians have a final exam. I don't know about you, but I have been to college and I've been in high school and a few other places. And uh, there have been some... Uh, uh, Greek class will be a good example of that. I started out, I had an A in Greek class. By the end of the second semester, I had a really solid D. Whew. I started strong, but in the end... I talked to the teacher and he said, yeah, you'd be better off taking some homiletics courses, which means how to preach courses. And I'd probably flunk those too. No, I didn't actually flunk those. But I'll tell you what, every bit of Greek I know, I use. I know more now than I did when I was in Greek class. But boy, it was tough for me. But you know what? In the end, there is a class that you need to take. There is, I'm sorry, not an exam you need to take. My son John is finishing two years of uh, PA school, and I understand, John, if I'm not misunderstanding, that in about a month or so, you have to take a final exam, and it covers two years' worth of material. Yeah, well, guess what? I'm not nervous about that, but if I was him, I'd be having anxiety attacks. But he's smarter than I am, and he studies harder than I do, so uh, hopefully that'll work out. Point is, God is going to hold all of us accountable for what's going on. Uh, in our lives, for our whole life. And so this morning, we're going to look at that. It says in chapter 3, verse 13, it says this. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it will be revealed with fire. 
And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now, I don't know if you have to walk through a fire or not, or if this is just getting the point across. I kind of think it's just getting the point across, because he's using things that have nothing to do with spiritual life, like gold and silver, precious stones, hay, wood, and straw, stubble if you use King James Version. But it's getting a point across. You are going to be examined, and it's going to be examined as if you were walking through a fire. And gold and silver, I don't know a whole lot about them, but here's what I do know. That when they're heated, when they're melted, when they are tested, they actually become more pure because the dross floats to the top. I have never been um, privileged to uh, deal with gold and silver in that way. But I have used lead to make weights for my garden tractor pullers. And uh, the lead came from all kinds of uh, different sources. And when I would heat it to melting point... Dross would come to the top, I'd scrape it off, it looked nice and shiny like silver, and then of course when it cooled, it looked like lead. But the point is, the more it was heated, the purer it got. And in this case, when it's talking about those things from the Christian life, when they're heated, they are not only not affected like a stone would be, but they also become purer. And then on the other hand, there are those things in the Christian life which look okay on the outside, but... Until the fire reveals them, you don't know what they are. For example, God, and the whole bottom line of this message is this, that the final exam is not so much about what it looks like on the outside. Because I can do, and I have done, and I'll put my hand up first, things that on the outside look good. Do you know why I did them? Because I wanted somebody to notice me. Or I did it because I had to. Kind of like the song the girls were singing. You know, it looked good on the outside, but it really wasn't from the inside. God looks and he examines in this fire of our Christian life. He examines the attitudes and the motives of what we do. So the truth of the matter is, a lot of things that I have done, and I'll just put you right in with me because I think you're more like me than not. A lot of things that we have done that have looked good on the outside to others, and we could look at it and say, hey, look look at me. Isn't that wonderful? You know what? They're going to be burned up because they were not done for three reasons. Number one, they were not done by faith. You did it on your own power, your own wisdom, instead of Christ working in us. It wasn't done for God's glory. It was done for me. And it wasn't done out of obedience. It was just done for expedience. It's like, oh, this will get me out of something. You know, it'll make me look good or whatever else. The point is, the bottom line is God doesn't just look at what you did or what you said or how you acted, but he looks at why you did what you did. This sermon is not to those that haven't trusted Christ. If you haven't trusted Christ, this means nothing. Because this is talking specifically to Christians. If you haven't trusted Christ, that's what you need to do. But if you're a Christian, and most of you here, I know most of you, claim to be Christians. Am I a hypocrite? Do I do the right thing, uh, but with the wrong motive? Do I have a right motive, but don't do anything? God says, I'm going to test you. And he says, those things which may look good are becoming evident. And they may be good. You did them for the right motive and everything else. And, hey, that's great. And the word uh, evident here is the same word as um, 
I'm sorry, the word revealed is the same word as the word revelation, as in the book of Revelation. Something that's unveiled. It'll be opened up so everybody can see. And in this case, it's God is the one that sees it. He knows our heart. And he says it will test the quality of our work. This past weekend, most of you know, uh, we had our first big tractor pull indoors. And at the end of the, I, I announced that ahead of time. That if you pull at our tractor pull, we are going to tear some engines down. We're going to see what's inside your engine to make sure it's legal. Remember, God, we could look at the outside and they all look good on the outside. But we're going to tear them apart and find out if you've done anything illegal to make your engine more powerful on the inside. So the first class we did, we took the, first, the top five. We pulled the heads off and we checked... Uh, the bore and the stroke, and we checked how big the carburetor was, and we checked what kind of fuel you had in it. Now, maybe that doesn't mean much to some of you, but the truth of the matter is all of those things make more or less power. Guess what? All five of them, and mine, oh, by the way, I was great. I was actually one of those. I was in the top five. That's the kind of good. But uh, so I got my, tear my own engine apart, and other guys could see what I did. And all of them were legal. And then somebody said, you know what? We ought to do one more class. Class that we have never teched before. So they pulled, and when it was done, the top five were lined up. The first four, we teched them, boop, boop, right down the line, everybody was totally legal. They got to the last guy, and he said, you're not touching my engine. And he got mad, and loaded his tractor up, and went home. Guess what? He was disqualified. Now, you don't get that choice with God here, folks, to get examined. He already knows the hearts. He examined the heart. But in that case, he was disqualified and will never again be allowed to pull that tractor at one of our pulls until he pulls the head off and shows us that it's legal. Because even by him skipping out and getting mad, pretty much indicted him as somebody that was doing something inside of his engine that was illegal. Point is, we simply wanted to examine it. For us, we had to open it up. For God, he says, I know the heart. I can examine the heart. I can look on the inside. And fact is... In the next chapter, and we'll talk about this probably next week, it says in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 4, it says, Moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. And then it goes on to say in verse 3, It's a very small thing that I'm examined by somebody else. So what does somebody else think about me? He says, that's a small thing. And then he goes on to say in that same verse, I don't even examine my own self. Let's face it. I always think, in most cases, I'm doing okay. You may not think I'm doing okay, but I think I'm doing okay. By the way, you're like me. We try to have a different standard for ourselves than somebody else. Didn't you ever notice that you can always point out what somebody else is doing wrong and it's a whole lot harder for you to admit that you did something wrong? Point is, examining yourself which we should do, but it's very limited. But here's what it says in verse 5 of chapter 4. It says, And he will disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. God is the one that we ultimately answer to. He is the one that gives the final exam. Not me. Not your group leader. Not your husband, not your wife, even though they think they got the final exam sometimes. Uh, Not the parents. It's God. He's the one that gives the final exam. 
In fact is, we already talked about this a few moments ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. It makes it clear that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And we will be recompensed for the deeds that we have done in the body, whether worthwhile or worthless. Those that stand the test of the fire, those that don't stand it. You know what? In the end, right now, all of us look pretty good this morning. You're all shined up and here and singing and, you know, doing all those things. Everybody looks good. You know what? I don't know what your heart attitude is. I don't know what your motive is. God does. And in the end, He alone is the one that will determine whether it was a good attitude or a wrong attitude, whether it was worthwhile or worthless. It continues on in verse 14. If any man's work which he has built up on it remains, he will receive a reward. There is something that God gives us in recognition. In tractor pulling, we don't normally give trophies, but I do buy trophies for the kids' classes. They think it's the greatest thing in the world to get a, I don't know, what, what the trophy, four or five dollars for a trophy, whatever they are. They think that's great. Us older guys say, give us the money and we'll buy fuel and parts and stuff like that. But the point is, you don't do something to get the reward. You do it because you're being faithful to God and you want to glorify Him. But in recognition of that, God does indeed give us rewards, recompense for what we do. He's saying, if, if what you've done, it stands the test, it remains, and you'll receive a reward. It is a crown. Now, in the Christian life, and this is one of my pet peeves anyway, and it's not a sermon about this, but... Does God care about the Christian life? The answer is yes, and there are no participation trophies, no participation crowns. It's not, oh, I'm a Christian, so I get a crown. In fact is, I believe there are a lot of people, me included, that think, well, I did this, so I guess I'll get a crown for that someday. I'm not too sure about it. fact is, the moment I think I'm doing it for a crown, I think I messed it up. If I did it because, well, you know, somebody's going to recognize me and God's going to, re- you know, I, don't, I believe you're doing it wrong because he examines the motive and the attitude of the heart. That's what he's really. And uh, a lot of people think, well, and I've heard people say this. It's like, well, I did this back 16 years ago and I'm getting a reward for that. I'm telling you, I don't know that that's true. might be true. But here's the... Um, attributes that need to be true if you're going to receive them. I'm going to do this very quickly. We're not at the the crowns yet, but there needs to be self-control that's exercised. It needs to be something that you are deliberate and give diligence to. It's not a once and done thing and now, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm set. That's not what it is. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it makes it clear that it needs to be voluntarily. Remember the attitude? Not with eagerness, not for sorry gain. It is as an example. I'm doing this above and beyond the call of duty. And it's something that is an ongoing thing. 
There's also a standard that needs to be met. In fact is, in James chapter 1, verse 12, and we'll come back to that, it says, Blessed is the man who perseveres. It's an ongoing thing. It's not just a once and done and now you're wonderful and you get a crown. It's an ongoing type of thing. It also is very clear that the crowns, the rewards, not our salvation, but our rewards can be lost. It says that in Revelation chapter 3, verse 11. I'm coming quickly, hold fast, in order that no one take your crown. Because the truth is, you can start well and land up very short. In fact, is the Apostle Paul said when he was talking about the games, the Ismanian games, and he was using it as an illustration in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, you know what, I could do all of these things, and if I don't go by the rules, I can be disqualified for the reward. You know the Olympics, you've, you've heard it, somebody gets first place, second place, or whatever it is, and then they do a drug test, and boop, they're done. They did something illegal. They had a performance-enhancing substance in their body. You know what? And they lose their reward. That's the point that is found here. And the other thing is, the moment you say, I'm doing this so somebody will notice me, you have just shot yourself in the foot. Because the end result of these rewards, these crowns, this recompense is not about you. It's not, I'm going to be in heaven with a stack of crowns on my head. That is the furthest thing from what it says. In Revelation chapter 4 verse 11, or 10 and 11, it says this, that those crowns are given to us so that we can place them back at the feet of Jesus. In the ultimate act of worship, as I like to call it. Because what we're saying is, thank you, Lord, for working in me, allowing me to be a part of the work that you're doing. Thank you for for giving me a reason for living, something to do, something to make a difference. And I'm giving it back because you alone are the one that's worthy. You see, crowns were never to make you look good. Oh, definitely as a part of if you're doing what God has asked you to do. He has no problem recognizing what is going on and rewarding us in that direction. So with that, if you want to look, you can look at the screen or you can look at that piece of paper I gave you. I gave you that so you can take it home with you. But what are those crowns? The first one is the evangelist crown. This is the coolest one of them all. Because, and I'm going to cut through because I'm going to run out of time real quickly this morning. I'm going to cut through it. The crown here has nothing to do with something you put on your head. The crown is actually the person that you lead to the Lord or help to lead to the Lord. How do I know that? Because it's very clear in the two passages where that crown is mentioned. It says, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ as his coming? It's the person themselves. I looked at it this way, and I put this little graphic up there. It's like, and my sanctified imagination, I'm not telling you this is how it works. But in my head, this is how it works. We come into the presence of the Lord, and if you've led one person, two people, if you're Billy Graham, it might be thousands, and you get to say, Jesus, this is Joe Smith. This is Jane Doe. And introduce them. I don't know if that's going to happen. You understand that. But the principle is that. That 
person is that crown of exaltation, that crown of joy that you get the privilege of bringing into the presence of the Lord. It's the only crown you can't lose. Because let's face it, if the person got saved, they're saved. We have security in our salvation. That's really cool. I don't know about you, but you want to make sure there's crowns in heaven and you're, you know what? Do it for the right reason. You already heard the rest of the sermon. But get out there. Give the gospel. I don't know what that's going to look like. It might be a tract that you gave to somebody that you just met in passing. It might be that you spent hours or days or half a lifetime witnessing to them and they finally came to Christ. I, I don't know what that is. All I know is you are the crown of exaltation. The person themselves. The second one is the crown of righteousness, also called the soldier's crown. This is the one that is for practicing on an ongoing basis diligence in holy living. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also all who have loved His appearing. You will never love the appearing of the Lord unless you are right with the Lord. That's why it's the one of holy living. Because I remember when when we were younger, we were teenagers, my dad would leave and go do something on a Saturday and say, Boys, you clean the barn out, and when you're done with that, you can have the rest of the day off. And he really meant that. You know what? We, we busted our backs to get done by lunchtime. We're, and we did stuff that he probably would have not approved of. But we got the work done. And we really did work hard to do that. You know what? When he came home, we had no fear. We had no repercussions in the negative. Because our work was done. And we were fooling around doing whatever we wanted to. And we weren't going to get yelled at or get punished. Because we were fooling around doing nothing. Because... We had no fear of dad coming home because the work was done. That's the whole thing. And if you are living in such a way as a holy life, you have no problem for the Lord coming back. And your love disappearing. You see, you don't get a medal in the military for simply being drafted or signing up. You get it because you went above and beyond the call of duty. You lived and acted in such a way that it made a difference. That's the crown of of the soldier's crown, the crown of righteousness. And then there's the shepherd's crown. The context where this is found is talking to the elders of the church, spiritual leaders. I'm not sure that it's limited to just elders, but it's for those who in unselfish service serve, teach, and are an example to other people. The passage is 1 Peter chapter 5. And it says a few things in there that you don't do it compulsion. You don't do it for the money. You do it as an example to the flock. To example, example to those that you're leading. I'm not too sure that doesn't include parents who have led their children in the right direction. I, I can't make a dogmatic statement there. I know spiritual leaders. That's, that's what I know for sure. The point is, it's not just, well, I did my job. Somebody forced me to. No, it's voluntarily. I didn't do it for the gain. But I didn't do it in a harsh way. I didn't lord over. But I did it as an example. 
I led, I fed, I took care of the flock under me. That's the shepherd's crown, the, the crown of glory. And then there's the striver's crown, the fourth one. It is a one that I already mentioned, it has to do with the Ismanian Games, very much like the Olympics. And the Apostle Paul uses this in First Corinthians chapter 9. He says, you know, I, I, I work like crazy. I exercise self-control. And in the Ismanian Games, I do it for a perishable wreath. That wreath is, uh, and this is literally what they would do. They would take olive branches, make a crown out of them, put it on the person's head. I don't know how long olive branches look good and olive leaves on there look good. But I can't imagine it's more than a couple of days, maybe a week at the most. He says, they spend a whole lifetime preparing to win this contest. And what do they get? A crown that in a week or so is going to look kind of ratty. But I want it. It represents something that I have accomplished. He says, but when you strive and when you continue to exercise self-control for your whole life, it is a crown that doesn't perish. It's one that's eternal and ongoing. It is one that requires us to be diligent every step of the life. This last one, the sufferer's crown, the crown of life. It is what Chris Etter talks about on a regular basis on uh, the first Sunday of each month when he talks about persecuted Christians. I've heard people say they got laughed at or somebody ridiculed them and, well, I'm going to get a crown for that. Sorry to burst your balloon. I don't think that's going to happen. I might be wrong, but I don't think that's going to happen because it says they persevered under trial. That's what this says. They're faithful until the end, till death. This is the crown that is given to those that suffer and maintain the name of the Lord and their testimony for the sake of the Lord while being persecuted, even to the point of death. Persevering under trial. You see, I don't believe there are participation trophies here because they are those things that have to do with my attitude. Why did I do it? Did I do it just because I had to? Because it looked good? My wife wanted me to? The, the congregation expected the pastor to do it? Or did I do it because, no, this is what God wants me to do. And by faith, I'm going to do it with God's power, with God's wisdom. And I'm going to carry it out for his glory. Well, there's, there's a possibility there. But I don't think these are just given out like candy. I believe it's a whole lot more to it. Everything I see. The... The snowstorm. I, I took a week off. That's why I wasn't here last week. And I was too, too beat to get out of bed last Sunday morning. I, first time in 30 years that ever happened. But I was beat. But anyway, on Wednesday, guess what I was doing? Same as all the rest. Was that Wednesday or Tuesday? I can't even remember. But it was a Tuesday. All day long, we're getting rid of snow. I go to one of our apartments. And the lady comes out and says, Hey, Paul, can you push the snow off the top of my car? I'm too short and I'm tired. I spent two hours shoveling the the car out and I'm tired and I'm too short. I can't get the the broom up to get it off. And I'm more than willing to do that. That's not the issue here. I was more than willing. And by the way, I did do that. But I looked at her and said, well, you have a perfectly healthy teenage daughter in this house. Why isn't she doing it? Well, she walked off. 
What do you mean she walked off? Well, we told her to go shovel the snow off the car and around the car, and she walked off and went to her friend's house. I'm telling you, sorry, folks, but my anger was right up to here. I, I, I walked in the house. It was the, the, the mother's friend that was asking me this. I walked in the house, and I said, Mom, Mom, you better get control of your daughter. This is crazy. Well, I'm going to call her caseworker, see what I can do about it. I, I wanted to jump out of my skin. I was angry. I seriously was angry. I went around the house with the snowblower, and I get to the front of the house, and I was going to do the fr- front sidewalk. And here stuck, and I'm not exaggerating this, there was a snowdrift about this deep. And this lady was one of those grocery carts that has two wheels that you pull like you, people use in the city. She was trying to go across our front yard to get to her apartment that was next to ours, and she got stuck in the snowdrift. She's like, mister, can you help me? <laughs> and I'm like, ma'am, just stay there. She couldn't move. Her, her cart was stuck. She was stuck. She just couldn't move. She was an older lady. I'm like, just stay there. I'll come down the sidewalk with my snowblower, and I'll help you out. And that's what I started to do. And about that time, I looked up, and I saw four teenagers walking down the sidewalk. And next thing I know, I looked up. I'm trying to get down there to help her. And next time I look up, they're in the snow with her. One or, one or two of them grabbed her cart and took it out and put it on the sidewalk, and the other two were helping her get through the snow. I'm telling you, I went from angry <laughs> and wanted to shake the daylights out of a teenager to Whoa, here are four teenage kids. Nobody forced them. Nobody did anything to force them to do anything. And I'm like, I got to thank these kids. I actually thanked them twice. And then I saw another lady and I said, man, those kids were great. That, that They had a great attitude and everything else. She says, one of those was my, my son. And I'm like, I want to tell you, Thank your son for me. And then I went back over. I saw them again. And I thanked them again. You know what? Total attitudes. You know, and God looks at the motive and examines the motive of our heart. And if, if that, I don't know, that would still just grits me the wrong way. But at least it's like, okay, not all kids act that way. There were four of them that did the right thing. The point is, God examines the motive. And verse 15 says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. The word if there is used, if is used four ways in the Bible. This one here is first class. It simply means if, and it is absolutely true. Real quick illustration. 21 years ago, I was 21 years younger than I am now, and I turned over my vacation, I turned 65, so I'm an old geezer now. But 21 years ago, I was 21 years younger, and I was putting on the siding in the back of the church. I believe, if I measured it correctly, it's 35 feet from the, from the basement up to the peak. We had a scissors jack, and the scissors jack was the whole way up, and they're kind of shaky to start with. And on top of that, by the way, the servant board is supposed to put their... Uh, fingers in their ears right now. And on top of that, I built a scaffold, you know, a mason scaffold, and that still wasn't enough. So on top of that, I put planks and put a stepladder on there. Now, my wife said, really stupid. She said it out loud in the first service, really stupid. I totally agree with that, by the way. I was younger and dumber and a few other things and, and more willing to do. I would never do that today. I would do other things, but not that. But you know what? 
If I would have fallen, this is the only reason I'm doing this, because I want to make this so clear. If I had fallen, I would not be standing up here today. I would, you would have done my funeral 21 years ago. Because I would have, and God doesn't go, oh, he's trying to build the, build the church building, so we'll put a cushion underneath or a trampoline so he falls. No, God doesn't do that. You know, I would have gotten the results. And it wouldn't have been, well, maybe he would have hurt himself. No, I would have been in big trouble. That's the point that I'm making. What it's saying here, and all that for this, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. It's not a, it is an absolute given. If it's burned up, you suffer loss. Not your salvation. Note, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. I jokingly say there will be a lot of Christians, me included, are going to go into heaven and we're going to smell like smoke. Because a lot of what looked good on the outside, a lot of what we did for the wrong attitudes and the wrong motives is going to get burned up. And a lot of Christians are going to go into heaven smelling like smoke. Because a lot of what we did is going to be burned up. We're moving on. The third thing, uh, that was... The third thing is, yes, we are the dwelling place of God. I'm going to make this very quick because I am running out of time. But here it's talking about the congregation as a whole. It says, you are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in you. Other places in chapter 6, we're going to talk about that God dwells in individual believers. And in Ephesians chapter 2, it's talking about the universal church, that God the Holy Spirit dwells in the whole church. But here's the point. This is not the word temple that means something built out of stone or brick or anything like that. It's not a building or anything like that. This simply means a sanctuary, a dwelling place. You've got to be really careful about some of these things because there are those that go around saying, Oh, your body is the temple of the God and, you know, they get in all physical fitness and all kinds of eating things and all that. That's not it at all. That is just totally missing the point. If it used a different word, I would agree with that. But this simply says, no, you are a body. Why does God care about the Christian life? You are a body. And what I do, what you do, what you do, what any of us does reflects on the whole body. Because this, you know, this congregation is a dwelling place of God. A sanctuary. The word that's used here is not used for the temple as a whole. And, and some, I'm sorry, it is occasionally used that way. But it's usually used of the holy place or the holy of holies where the priests actually do the work. Where God dwelt. It's very different. It's not talking about the external things. It's talking about the internal things. That's the whole emphasis here. And he's saying, you're a temple of of God. You're a dwelling place of God. And what I do reflects on you. See, what I do as a pastor reflects on anybody that says, well, we go to Garden Chapel, we're a member of Garden Chapel. If you go to Garden Chapel, it reflects on me. It's like, hey, Paul, you know so-and-so. By the way, this happens. You know what so-and-so is doing that goes to your church? Sometimes I know, sometimes I don't. But I'll tell you what, it's a reflection. It absolutely is. He says, you're all holy. And God does care what you do. You know why? Because what you do reflects on everybody else that's here. What I do reflects on everybody else. God says, yeah, I care what you do with your, your life. You need to make sure that what you do is from the right attitude, the right motive, because God examines it. And not only does God examine it, but it reflects on everyone else. And one last one. 
Yeah, he does care because he separates us from what is worldly wise. The last verses in this chapter go on to tell us, well, and it uses that same word if. So again, it's unconditionally true. It simply says, if any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. And then he goes on to quote Job, the only place that Job is quoted, advertisement for Sunday nights. We were just in this passage uh, a couple of weeks ago in the book of Job on Sunday evening. It says, he is the one, this is God, who catches the wise in their craftiness. And then he quotes from Psalm 94, and he says, again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they're useless. It doesn't matter what area it is. If you think, I'm accomplishing ministry because I'm doing it the worldly way, it's going to crash and burn. If you are, it doesn't matter if it's education, it doesn't matter if it's science or medicine or education or government or you name it, it doesn't matter. If it's done the world's way, it's going to be a problem. Where do we come up with this foolishness thing? Starts in... 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The concept, the preaching, the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You see, he's saying, if you don't live with Christ as the focus, Christ as the power and the wisdom for your life, you're in the wrong direction. Yes, he does care how we live the Christian life. He wants us to live it according to the power of God and the wisdom of God. And I'm just going to read the last part because I think it says everything it needs to say all by itself. Verse 21, so then let, one, let no one boast in men for all things belong to you. Notice everything that we need, we already have. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. Everything you need to live the Christian life, you already have it in Christ. And you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Wow. Does he care how we live the Christian life? The answer is absolutely yes. Because guess what? We all belong together. We're the dwelling of of the Holy Spirit. We all belong to Christ. Everything that we have belongs to all of us. And, oh, by the way, the whole spirit belongs to God, God the Father. We're in Christ and Christ and God. It's all one big package. So what we do not only reflects on each other, but it reflects on Jesus Christ and God the Father. Wow. That's hopefully some encouragement. Maybe a challenge. Maybe you've been playing around and thinking I'm I'm okay. No. thing is, I challenge you. It's above and beyond. It's not just sliding through. It's making a difference. Let's all stand together as we close. Father, I thank you that you are a God that does care about us. You want the best for us, and you acknowledge when we do what is right. I pray that we would leave here understanding that our motives and our attitudes absolutely count. The things that we do, yes, they're important. But in the end, for all eternity, they'll be burned up if they were not done out of faith with your wisdom and your power, with a motive to glorify you and obey you. Lord, help us not to be self-centered, but to be God-centered and to live in such a way that we 
our life reflects good, not only on the rest of the Christians, but also in Jesus Christ and God the Father. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go with God.